Okay, so um, we did miss, what was last week? What? Doug Pearson was here, that's right. And so uh, we kind of backed us up one not one weekend. And uh, just so it, I'm sure everybody is aware, but next weekend will be um, vacation Bible school. So there will not be a Bible study Wednesday night. There'll be a lot of activities going on. I hope uh, many of you can be involved in that. Uh, if, if you want to be anyway, I know you can be. Um, and then, um, so anyway, we're talking about uh, what I call, uh, we're, we're really talking about why God? Why is there a God? Who is God? How do we know that God is real and so on? And so this topic, uh, is, and I don't have it on the slide, I don't believe, but uh, if you recall, I kind of laid out the path that we're taking over the course of these next several weeks. And, um, you know, we're talking about proofs of God, really. That's the, that's the basic, like, the, challenging, the, the challenge of the world is, is how do we know that God exists? Because there's proof that he exists. And so we talked about last two weeks ago now, the, what we call the proof from cause. I know that was a mind-boggling, mind-twister conversation, uh, the uncaused cause. How can something be caused and an uncaused? It's all at the same time. And, and where is that uncaused cause? That uncaused cause is God himself. Because uh, everything is caused except God. God is uncaused. He has no cause for God. There is no cause for him, his, his being in existence. And uh, so we talked about that design. Two weeks from tonight, we'll talk about the proof of, of what's called proof of design, uh, and, and, and uh, that's a, a great topic. Um, I'm not going to be teaching that top that particular lesson. That'll be uh, um, Jer Jeremy Bonison will teach that because I'm going to be on vacation, and um, uh, so I'll be gone that week. And then, uh, and then the next one is I don't remember in, in order there, but proof from cause, proof of design, proof from uh, fossils, and and uh, 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 proof from the age of the earth and, and proof of several different proofs. We go through 11 different ones. Uh, but uh, if you have your notes from last uh, last couple of times, uh, which I think there should be handouts out there. If you don't, get, you don't have a handout, you can grab another one out there. That's, they basically are all stapled together for, the, for every lesson. They're all just basically together. So if you get that, to hang on to it. Don't throw it away or anything. Don't forget it because it all goes together. Thought that would be the easiest way to do it instead of printing them out each week. Um, so anyway, so we're at we're talking about what, providing a reasonable defense for God. And so remember, we talked about the the, the primary verse uh, that gives us instruction on what we're what we're about to do or what we should do as a believer. Bible says in First Peter chapter three verse fifteen uh, to sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. And that phrase uh, that I think it's bolded up there, it looks like, sort of bolded, give an answer. That is the, the, the English translation of the Greek word apologia. And the, the word apologia is where we get the concept or the, 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 just the, uh, the word apologetics. And I've told you this before that this apologetics is not I'm apologizing for my belief. It is providing a reasonable answer for why you believe what you believe. And I do believe, I'm assuming, that everybody in the room tonight believes that there is a God. And so we start with that. Why do you believe that there is a God? Because an atheist, if you go 
you know, to family, friends, co-workers, whatever, and you start saying, you know, I believe in God. I believe there is a God. Oh, really? Well, tell me, how do you know that? How do you know that there is a God? And so these proofs in each week will talk about another concept, another lesson that will help you try to answer or have some, some information that you can, I, I would tell you to research this out. As a matter of fact, in the, in the resource center, uh, out in the lobby, I don't think it's open right now, but I know it's open on Sundays. There are four or five books that I recommended that they keep in, in, on hand that you can acquire. I don't know if there's any in the library or not, um, but uh, they're great books. They're not hard. They're not really hard reads, uh, but they are, they are uh, helpful if you want to dig into it any further. But anyway, uh, the last lesson, lesson four, as I said, was a talk was a, a discussion on the proof of cause, where we examine the ultimate cause of all things, and we learned that the. Remember, I talked about a chain. Uh, I don't know how that picture over here right now, but I had a chain, right? uh, uh, an anchor chain or a, a logging chain, for example. You know, big heavy-duty links, and uh, when you attach attach that logging chain to a log to drag it, it doesn't drag by itself. It doesn't matter how many links you have in that chain. You have to have something to pull the chain with so that you can pull the log. That force, your tractor in most cases, and moving a log, that is the, it, it, that's the picture of God. God is the force, the cause that moved all of those links to get locked into and hold tight and pull that log. That's the cause. cause God is the cause of everything that has happened so we talked about that last, last, well, two weeks ago now, and we talked about the fact that God has no cause for his existence because he is what we used. To, we talked about his, God being a necessary being. Uh, he, he is just necessary. He's, be it, to be a necessary being means that there is nothing that caused him to be. He's not contingent on anything else. You and me, we are contingent on a lot of things. We are contingent on the atmosphere having enough oxygen for us to breathe. We would choke and, and, and suffocate if we did not have oxygen. We're contingent. If there's not enough oxygen, we'll talk about the, uh, the interesting conversation of fine-tuning of the universe here in a couple of weeks. Um, but anyway, so there's a, there's, we're contingent. God is not, God's not contingent on anybody. We have a spiritual body. Uh, we're, we're a spiritual body because we're saved, but that's contingent on God. It's, God is not contingent on anything. He is necessary, though. Uh, and then what or are, what are where did the universe come from? That was some of the questions that we're trying to get answered. Where Was it always here? Was the universe always here? That's where we're going to go today. Has the universe always been here? There is a lot of people that say that the, the universe is indefinite and go on. And we're going we're gonna to break down some of that, that conversation as well. Is, is the universe even really here? There are those weirdos out there that think that, Reality doesn't actually exist. Don't know how that works, but there are people that don't think that exist that university that things like the universe actually exist. What is the purpose of why the universe is here? What is the purpose of it? And these are but some of the questions that are valid and rational questions to ask. And I do say they're valid because I mean, we we want to know why are we even here? How did we get here? What is our purpose in the universe? And so on. And so. Um, <clears throat> the way we view the universe ultimately leads to the kind of answers that we're able to supply and are willing to acknowledge. I mean, there's things that we will look at evidence-wise, uh, 
that will form either your belief and support of there is a God, or uh, for some people, uh, this is why there is no God, because the evidence will turn them uh, to a point where they don't believe that there is a God. And so we're looking at the same evidence. Remember, I've told you before, uh, the first couple of weeks we got together, I'm not teaching all of this uh, and, and trying to support what people have referred to in, in your case, uh, our case, that you have a blind faith. What did I tell you that we have? Anybody remember? Evidential faith. We have faith because of the evidence. You know, in Hebrews chapter 11, in fact, turn over there real quick. This has nothing to do with the lesson, but this is where I'm going to go right now because I just feel like God wants me to say this. In Hebrews chapter 11, everybody's familiar with the verse, chapter 11, verse 1. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, for the evidence of things not seen. See, there's the evidence part right there. There's evidence of things not seen. It's because you don't see everything. You can't see everything, but the evidence points to what the reality is, that there is a God. Not only that, but when you, you know, one of the reasons that we like to have people give testimonies, you know what testimonies are? They are you testifying, isn't that a word that we use in court? You're testifying of things that you have experienced in the past, whatever that may be, whatever the court case may be, you're giving a testimony of the things that happened in the past. So that's evidence now, this is why I believe, because the evidence is stacked up in favor of your belief. Okay, so let me go on. Uh, so now we're going to start looking at the proofs that are inside the universe. Last time, uh, when we talked about proof from cause, we were really talking about something outside of the universe. I intended to look up the verse, and I don't remember when I, where it's at. But remember I told you that God says in Isaiah that God holds the, holds the world in the span of his hand, holds everything in all of creation in the span of his hand. But, so we were talking about God outside of the universe. Now we have stepped inside the universe, and we want to talk about inside the universe and what, those, what the proofs are inside the universe. And we have Romans uh, chapter 1, verse 20. Uh, hopefully you've got this memorized, but in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, I don't know if it's on the screen. Nope, not. Romans chapter 1, verse 20 uh, says that for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, evidential seen, being understood by the things that are made, even as eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Now, we, we could go back to the whole beginning of chapter 1, talk about who they are. Uh, we don't need to do that today at this point in time. But, but there are people that see the same thing that you see and say they're, that they give an excuse for why there is no God. This verse is very clear. The invisible things of him, God, are clearly seen from the creation of the world, being understood by the things that are made. And we talked about made, what caused things to be made, and so on. That's where we were at. Okay, so here we go. Uh, so, so the first thing, we're looking at several proofs um, for God, both scripturally and scientifically. And the Bible assumes that from the beginning, God existed. Do you ever think about that? I mean, from the very beginning of the Bible... It's not like God was introduced in the Bible. It's the Bible assumes, presumes, establishes that there is a God. In the beginning, God, first one, Genesis chapter one, right? What does it say? In the beginning, God. First couple of words right off the bat. In the beginning, God. It's established there is a God. God has created the universe. So 
The Bible assumes that from the beginning that God exists. It does not try to develop arguments to prove that he exists. But there are four proofs from God's existence that we'll talk about throughout the next couple of weeks. Um, and so the first one is the word chronological or cosmological. The cosmological argument for, or proof from cause, and that's what we were at last week. Everything in the universe has a cause, including the universe, and that the cause of the universe is God. So we dealt with that last week. Uh, the word cosmos comes from the Greek word. It means world or universe. That's why we, you know, we always use that word up in the cosmos when we're talking about in space, right? And we use that word all the time. Uh, but here it's, it's, uh, it's, it's referring to the universe. And then there's another argument that we'll get into later on, the teleological argument or the proof for design. Teleo, teleological or teleos is a Greek word for design, and it tells us the purpose, the order, the harmony, and the design or the direct principle, the directed principle involved in the universe. And that's what you get two weeks from tonight. And, uh, Jeremy will be teaching on the, the uh, proof from design, the teleological argument. Uh, you'll, you'll enjoy that quite a bit. I will tell you right now, it's a, it's a good topic to go through, proof from design. It's a subcategory of the cosmological argument, so it kind of steps down from that. The evidence for design, function, and purpose argues for a God who created all there is in a certain way for a certain function. Like, why do we have arms? Why do we have opposable thumbs? Why do we have ears? I mean, why do we have anything that we have? God gave us all that for a purpose. Uh, and so, uh, teleological uh, refers to a structure of systems that cannot be explained by some natural law requiring their appearance. There is no natural law that explains why we have the things that we have, even in the universe. The teleological argument also refers to biological systems that possess characteristics such as that contained in the DNA code of every cell. Every cell in your body has a DNA strand, uh, and that is reference to the teleological argument, it cannot, the DNA code cannot be explained by any natural law that requires you to have DNA. So why do you have DNA? That's part of what this conversation in two weeks will be about the argument for design. Uh, so these structures, these systems, these biological systems are almost reasonably explained or most reasonably explained as coming from the design efforts of an intelligent agent, which is God. So I'm not using the phrase intelligent design, which you may have heard that phrase before, intelligent design. I'm not actually using that because I'm just talking about design. The intelligence is given to God, given that intelligence comes from God. So uh, anyway, the next argument that we'll be looking at over the course of several weeks is the anthropic argument or the proof uh, from fine-tuning. And uh, this is a really cool topic as well, the fine argument for fine-tuning. Anthropic basically means human. Anthropic means human. And we're talking about the physical constants and the physical laws of the universe that appear to be uniquely, specifically related to one another. Basically, the universe, the earth, your, in, your environment that you're at is finely tuned for you to exist. I'm not talking about the fact that you might live in Harrisonville. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the fact that you're here at all on the earth. How does it? How does? 
how did the universe come to, to tune everything that's needed? And we'll go through a lot of those when we, when we get into that topic. But how did we get it to where, where um, like the, the right distance from the sun? I'll just give you a couple of examples. The right distance from the sun, the right rotational speed, the fact that the moon doesn't change where its position, um, you know, the moon is where it's at, and we just kind of spin around. We see the moon as we go around. Uh, why is that kind of happening? So why is the temperature the temperature it is? Why? Uh, what about gravity and so on? We'll go through all of those. That's the entropic principle argument. Fine-tuned relationships of these laws and constants appear to be designed. They just they appear to be designed as their existence by natural and unguided means seems improbable and unlikely. It just doesn't seem probable that all of these things, and there's a huge list. We won't go through all of them, but we will go through many of them. But there's a huge list of, of specific things that have been fine-tuned to make it possible for us to live. A design requires an intelligent designer, but I'm still not using the intelligent design as the phrase. I'm just keeping it as design. Uh, an incredibly vast and complex design requires an in incredibly intelligent and powerful designer. And so God is the ultimate, most reasonable explanation for such a vast universal designer and fine-tuner. Somebody had to tune the knobs. Just like Ray's, or, uh, Ron's up there, uh, not right at this very moment, but when, when somebody's singing, he's, he's fine-tuning the sound for the room. So, so in a way, that's fine-tuning, but it's very narrow just for this environment in this room at the, at the time that we're singing. Okay, one last one that, we'll, that just is what we're going to get into in, towards the end of this series is the moral argument or the proof of objective morality. And so uh, objective moral values do exist, even though many people will say there are no such thing as objective moral values. But man has an idea of right and wrong, no matter what basis they have the idea of right and wrong from. Every one of us have a concept about what is right and what is wrong. That's morality. You know, we may all be different on what we think is right or wrong, but we all still have a moral, moral compass. And uh, we'll talk about that. The argument here for the moral argument states that there must be a God who is the source of right and wrong and who will someday respond in judgment. And I think the Bible says very clearly that God will uh, judge. In fact, as Hebrews, <clears throat> in Hebrews it says that, according to this, after, for every man to die, then after that is a judgment. There will be a judgment for every person. Okay, so the cosmological and the theological arguments are supported by the consensus of the modern scientific community. When I say that, what I'm basically saying is science supports both the cosmological and the theological arguments for God. The scientific community supports it. They may not like it. They may say, well, that doesn't point to God, but it, it does, actually. So we know this to be true from three lines of indisputable evidence which make the conclusion inescapable for a logical, reasonable, scientific person. So um, one of the things I'm going to talk about is the laws of, laws of thermodynamics, uh, also the laws of Einstein's theory of relativity and the, the evidence of astronomical observations. I'm not going to get into those at this point, at this point but over, over the next several weeks we'll break those down and look at them. 
So um, the scientific, the cosmological and the theological, teleological argument has things like Einstein's theory of relativity, the thermodynamics, and so on to support it. The entropic principle is supported by the evidence of the scientific community that there is order in the universe. The scientific community knows that there is order. In fact, they've identified what that order is. They just don't want to identify who ordered it. And so uh, then finally, the, the moral argument is supported by the evidence of an objective moral interactions between human beings and the creator. Okay, so that's kind of a, where we're going. Where, we're, where I want to keep that before you so you, you don't lose track of what we're trying to get done. But let me talk about the, the second proof of God the proof from creation. So far, we've looked at the introduction and the setting up of some preliminary concepts and so forth, and now we can move forward. First was the, the basics of apologetics. We talked about that, what it is, what is how it's done, and so on. Then we talked about the, the, how, what, how to understand what it means to believe. We, remember we had that conversation. What does it mean to believe? How do you acquire knowledge? How do you get to faith? And so on. And so... Um, Lastly, we considered how faith is actually a reasonable outworking of our understanding of truth. And we talked about that at length. And so um, then, we were, then we invested in an understanding of how to answer the question of, remember the guy named Leibniz, he asked the question, why is there something rather than nothing? That was his challenging question. Why is there something rather than nothing? And, and he tried to answer that question, and we're going to try to answer that question over the next several weeks as well. Um, so this proof, the proof of creation, uh, has, this, has as its setting a place outside of time, space, and matter. So when I say time, space, and matter, you think everything within the universe is, is, is involved in time, space, and matter. So we'll start looking at the proofs that are inside the universe, starting with the Bible's description, uh, which I read, Romans chapter 1, verse 20. I won't take the time to read that again, but let me just say this. Um, we want to examine what is called the cosmological argument or the argument from creation. That's what we're going to start with. Cosmos, as I said, comes from the Greek, and the Greek word it means world or universe. So the cosmological argument is the argument from the beginning of the, uni of the universe. If the universe had a beginning, that universe had a cause. That's because there's a lot of people that don't want to believe that the universe has had, had a beginning and it's just always been here. Um, but I will say this, all that is had a beginning, except God, because God was a necessary being. All that is had a beginning. We already mentioned Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. So we've examined the first part of the verse, in the beginning. Um, and now we're going to examine the second half, God created. So what is the proof of creation? There, are, there was nothing... There was nothing, and then there was something. That's, that's where we're going to go. There was nothing at, at some point in time in history. There was nothing, and then there was something. That's something that became, became the universe. Early Greek philosophers and others may have reasoned that our universe has just existed from eternity past. They may have agreed or proposed that God brought order to the cosmos, but they will not say that he created the cosmos. They don't want to give God credit for the creation that he did. They acknowledge that matter was a necessary thing, but, is un un but it is uncreated and eternal. Matter, the, the actual stuff 
of the universe. They say, we don't know where it came from. We, you have to have it to have what we have in the universe, but we don't know where it came from. That's basically the position many uh, uh, scientists have taken over, over many years. Of course, this is a stark contrast to the teaching of the Bible and is contained in the Old Testament, that God created it and he put it all together, especially in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. So after having listened to, the, to Job lament of his circumstances, God challenged him. If you go back and read the book of Job, all the way from chapter, chapter 3 probably to chapter 37 is Job interacting with his supposed friends and they're challenging him on his faith and he's probably really in sin and he just doesn't know it. That's what brought all of his problems. And in chapter, I think it's chapter 37, 38, 39, 40, God speaks. And God says, who was there? Were you there, Job, when, I did, when this happened? Were you there? No, but I was, God says. I was there. He's making a very cl clear statement. In fact, Job chapter 38, verse 4 says this. Where, where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if thou hast understanding. And that's the same kind of question over and over again from chapter 38, 39, 40, and I think even 41, where God is challenging Job, and he's challenging you and me, and he's challenging the, the, uh, uh, the world that doesn't believe in him. Where, where, where were you when all of this stuff came out, came, came to be? Where were you? Where were, you weren't here. Because it had to be this stuff first before it could be you. And so anyway, uh, God asked Job, where were you when I made the universe? And he continues in verse 5, in Job 38, 5. He says, who laid the measures? Who stretched out the line? He asked in verse 6, to what are the foundations of all that is created fastened to? In fact, flip over to Job 38, because that's, that's an interesting question that God is asking. Job 38, verse 6. Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened, or who laid the cornerstone thereof? Verse 7. When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy, or who shut up the sea with doors when it break forth as if it had issued out of the womb? And so he goes on. and just, I'm not going to read all those questions. I mean, those are just challenging questions that are very valid questions. That God, so we like to ask, well, where is God? And God is saying, well, I was right here. Where were you? That's basically what these chapters are all about. Is, well, I was right here. Where were you at, Job? You know, or Randy, where were you? So anyway, the remaining verses really are worth your review in the light of the truth that the universe was in fact created. And God is leading Job to the proof of creation through what we call the proof from cosmology. So let me be clear about this. What makes a good argument for proof? When we're saying, I'm going to prove God, I'm going to prove God through creation. So we talked about this before, but let me just give you some, some premise-type statements, and then we'll make some conclusions. So the first one is, well, the first thing is an argument is a series of statements called premises leading to a conclusion. A sound argument must meet two conditions. Uh, first, it needs to be logical, logically valid, and secondly, its premises need to be true. So basically, when you make a premise-type statement, your logic needs to be right and, your, and your, 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 your position needs to be true. If an argument is sound, then the truth of the conclusion follows 
right after that, just by necessary following. But it's a good. But if it. But to be a good argument, it's not enough to just argue to be sound. You can't just argue this point. So a good argument is a sound argument when the premises are more plausible in light of the evidence than their opposite. So, well, this cosmological argument. There is actually a name for it. It's called a column cosmological argument. The word column is actually a Hebrew, I'm sorry, an Arabic word, uh, and it, it's originally meant a speech, a speech, but it has become more defined with a, with a theological teaching. The column cosmological argument originated with the efforts of ancient Christian philosophers to refute Aristotle's doctrine of the eternity of the universe. So even people back as far as, like Aristotle, Aristotle didn't believed that the universe was created, he just taught that the universe has always been, always existed. That's just what he, that was part of his philosophical position. But this argument called the column, arg column argument um, was developed to, to refute Aristotle's position on the eternity of the universe. So here's, here's the statements. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. And we dealt with the cause things a couple weeks ago. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. The next premise is the universe began to exist. Now, I'm making a, a, a public statement. The universe began to exist. I believe the universe began to exist. I'm not like Aristotle. Aristotle would have said, no, the universe has just always been here. Just, well, when did it start? Well, it's just always been here. For me, the universe had a beginning. It had a start. And the third uh, premise is that, therefore, the universe has a cause. So whatever begins to exist has a cause. You see the logic in these three statements? Whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe begins to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause. So whatever begins to exist has a cause. Let's break that down a little bit further. Because we examined premise one in detail when we talked about the proof from cause two weeks ago. And we talked about cause being the fundamental principle of science. And this is an interesting thing to think about. Because without the fundamental principle of cause, science would not be possible. So think about that for just a minute. Without the fundamental principle of cause, science is impossible. You know why? Because science is about answering the cause reason. What is the cause for this? They want to know. The scientists do experiments to get to the answer what caused this. That's what they do. And every time they, you know, whether it's, uh, what is the cause for cancer? Let's see if we can stop it. What is the cause? We, get, we, have, we have to find out what caused the cancer so we can create a, a cure for cancer. Which they're really close to that, by the way, if you didn't know that. Um, Francis Bacon, uh, the uh, father of modern science, said, true knowledge is knowledge by causes. That's what scientists do. They try to discover what caused what. That is the basics for science all throughout. So think about that. Science, that, every experiment that, science, that a scientist does is trying to answer the cause, what, the question, what caused that. That's what they do. They try to discover what caused what. Premise number two that we just looked at was the proof uh, from existence. Um, the universe began to exist. So when the universe began to exist, God had a plan which was to be revealed in his word. 
In Psalm chapter 19, I don't know if this is on the screen. Nope, it's not. Psalm chapter 19, verses 1 to 4, tell us that the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line is gone out throughout all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them has he set a tabernacle for the sun. Those four verses in Psalm chapter 19 basically say the heavens, the universe, declare God's existence. That's what those verses are actually saying. The heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament showeth his handiwork. Now, you know that word firmament, that was the dividing of the, the, the heavens in Genesis chapter 1. He divided the firmament above the, and the firmament below. But we're talking about heaven there. And so there is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. The thing of universe, all of the universe, speaks to every person. Doesn't matter what language they speak, because the universe speaks every language, because it's describing God who reaches every person. Notice that this passage has several key important things as well. As we talked about last week, God desired to be revealed. That's one of the coolest things about our God is he desired to be revealed, and he wants to be revealed. And so he declared himself through his own creation. Second thing that we see here is that the object of the universe display his creative ability. It's his handiwork. He did it. So we want to know who did it? Well, you can just look and see he's the one that did this. And the declaration of this creation is what we term general revelation. Remember we talked about the two types of revelation last couple of weeks ago. General revelation, things revealing God in his creation, and special revelation is the things that reveal God in his in his scripture, in his word. Lastly, it says that he set a tabernacle for the sun at the end of verse 4. This doesn't mean that, that, that the star that we call the sun, he's not talking about that sun. It's a unique reference to his son, the son of God, Jesus Christ. He set a tabernacle for the sun, for God, for Christ. He set a tabernacle. Oh, we have, so we know about the tabernacle, right? Because we are walking tabernacles ourselves now. We are the temple of Christ. In, and he lives in us. And so um, let me give you a couple of other verses. Psalm chapter 84, verse 11. Sorry, these are not on, I didn't put these on the screen, but um, they're in your handout. Oh, good. That's why you need a handout. Okay, so Psalm 84, verse 11. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. And then in John chapter 1, verse 5 says, The light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. In verse Revelation 21, verse 23, And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. The Lamb being Christ, and He is the light of the universe. Okay, so a lot of preface stuff, and it was like, where is He going with all of this stuff? So let me give you some, let me give you what I call uh, a surge of scientific evidence. And I use the word surge for an uh, acronym. So a five-point surge. Start, so we start with S, S-U-R-G. So we start with S, and, and S refers to the second law of thermodynamics. The second law of thermodynamics. And now, I'm not, I didn't take a lot of science classes in school, but what I do know is that the second law of thermodynamics is the study of matter. Well, thermodynamics in general is the study of matter and energy. And that there are several laws 
obviously there's a second law, so there's got to be a first law. Within the study of thermodynamics, you know the first law, it's not on the screen, but the first law is about the conservation of energy, which states, and this is important when we talk about the universe, the first law of thermodynamics states that when the total amount of energy in an isolated system is constant. Energy cannot be changed from one, can be changed from one state to another, but it can never add to or take away from the energy that's in a closed system. And the universe is what we would call a closed system. What energy, when remember I told you last week that when God created the universe, all of the energy that's contained in the universe came from God, but he's bigger, he's more energy, he has more energy, more power, more, more strength than even what he created. And he created it and he closed up the universe as a closed system and all the energy that's in the system, it's there, it's just in different forms and it can change, go from cold to heat, go from light to dark. Those are changes in energy. The second law of thermodynamics basically says that everything runs out of energy. And this is important. So there's, there's energy in the universe, but, our, but everything runs out of energy eventually. So let me just give you an example of what I mean by everything runs out of energy. So with the second law telling us that the universe is going to run out of usable energy, okay, so I think I, don't, I was going to bring a basketball, but I didn't, I didn't do that. Because everybody knows what a basketball is, right? You hold the basketball out, you take it, you raise it up over your head, and you slam it down on the ground. What does it do? Okay, how many times does it bounce? Huh? Depends on how hard you throw it. So the energy exerted in the basketball slamming to the floor, and it, okay, so I'm holding it this high, and it bounces. Does it get back to this high? Sometimes. What about the second bounce? How far does it go up? Doesn't go all the way up, does it? Third bounce, fourth bounce. You know, that's why you dribble, right? You have to keep pushing the ball down on the floor so you can play basketball and dribble. Because eventually the ball stops. That's why I never play basketball. I could never do that. So anyway, um, this is the idea of that ball running out of energy is called entropy. And it's a measure of the disorder of a closed system. Now, all of these things basically run down to this is what the scientists have been looking at, the energy of, of, this, of the universe. Where did it come from? Where is it going? What is it changing into? With each passing moment, the amount of usable energy in the universe grows smaller and smaller, leading scientists to, to, to believe that one day all the energy will be gone and the universe will die. So this is an important concept that's just happening. So, you know, like running a car or batteries in a flashlight, the universe will ultimately run out of energy. So the first, thermal, first law of thermodynamics simply says that in that closed system, there's only a set amount of energy that cannot be created or destroyed, but it can be changed. So these two laws, first and second law, confirm for us that the universe is not eternal. Because when the universe was first created, it had so much energy in it. And the universe has been expanding as for... As many years as it's been expanding, some would say 13.8 billion years that the universe has been expanding. And as it grows out, things that have happened, and I'll show you a diagram later on. I don't think we get to it today. I'm not sure. Um, that the universe expands out so far, and, and the energy that went out uh, created the stars, created because they, all the galaxy, or not the galaxy, but the gravity pulled things together and created the, the galaxies, the stars, the planets, and so on. 
The second, second law is so per persuasive that many scientists have associated with the passing of time. So that's the key part probably you need to know is that scientists have looked at the, the, the energy in the universe and said, why, another question, why, why is the energy seen to be getting weaker? And then they say, well, over time, just like the basketball, over time, the energy will be dissipated and, run, and things will run out, It'll to basically to a zero level of energy. And now they are saying that, that the only way that the universe could have, could have not been eternal is if, if, the, if the energy in the universe was, is running out and it started eternity ago on its own, then the universe would have had to, the universe would have already run out of energy and be at a state of complete dead stop. But the universe is not. It's still moving. It's still growing. It's still expanding. In Isaiah chapter uh, 9, the, 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 uh, the kingdom, of, um, God's kingdom is going to continue to grow. And so I hope that's making sense. Yeah. Because it, it cha actually changes the type of energy that it is. So like when we take the basketball and we hit it on the ground, uh, so that's the energy that's in that, th that ball right at the moment when I slam it. That's the energy that's there, and it comes up. So when, when, you, when you bounce the ball, what, what, it changes into certain kinds of energy. For example, you don't hear a basketball bouncing right now, but if I bounce the ball, you would hear it. So some of the energy that's dissipated out of the ball goes out in the form of sound waves. It also goes out, if you were close enough to it, you would feel the vibration of that ball hit the ground. You would feel it in your feet. So there's energy that's now in vibration mode. So it's energy that's from here slamming it, now dissipated out of the ball. That's why the, the ball only goes so high each time. It gets lower and lower because it's dissipating. The ball, the, the, the ball now has, has had energy but now that energy has been converted into another, another type of energy. So first it was force, my muscles slamming it, then it became sound, and it became uh, vibration, and it became uh, stretching of the, of the basketball material. So that stretch actually produced a little bit of heat, you know, friction. Uh, so there's, you know, just as it's bouncing, it gets, there's just a slight change in the, in the surface of the, of the the basketball's temperature. So those are where it changes. So it does seem like it can counter, count, contradicts each other, but it really doesn't. What the, the, the energy in a closed system doesn't, you can't add to it. The only way I could add to it is like dribbling, but I'm not really adding to it. I'm just in, in, inject, I'm, I'm doing a different amount of energy now. Every time I try to dribble, I'm throwing no more energy at it, uh, but I'm not adding to it. It's, the ball only has so much energy that it can contain. The, energy, the universe is the same way. Uh, so the first, the first law says that a closed system has so much energy. It can be changed, but it can't be 
added to, you can't put more energy in or you can't take more energy out. You can't take energy out. It can be changed. And so as it's changing, it's dissipating. And as, so it's, but it's going into a different uh, state. So in the universe, basically, as if, if, uh, if the universe was decreasing, as many scientists think it should, uh, and, and I mentioned earlier about the times, about the amount of time that they think that it indicates true time. Uh, basically, the universe goes to goes to black. Right now, the, ener the energy that created the universe, which was God, gave us all that we have: the lights, the gravity, uh, the, the the motion of the universe, and all those things that are in there. And then that all dissipated to darkness, and everything. All the this, our our sun would would turn off. There would be no more sun. All the stars would turn off. There'd be no. There'd be nothing left in the universe. It, everything would just cease. That's the that's the the two laws that are applicable for this. Hope that makes sense. Hope it makes sense to everybody. That was a good question, and hope that was a good a good answer. Okay. So. Let me go on. So we got the S, the second law of thermodynamics. The U is the universe is expanding, which I mentioned already. Einstein theorized in his theory of 1917 that the universe was expanding in his, in his, uh, his law of, of um, gravity. Uh, he, didn't, he didn't take pleasure in making this, making this known that the universe was expanding because that meant that he had to show that it, if it's expanding... It had to expand from something. It couldn't have always been. It couldn't have always been because it wouldn't. Because it, it's it's always expanding. So it's got to have a point of zero start, in in Einstein's uh, theory. He he he. It meant that his theory that firmly held beliefs of unchanging universe were about to come to an end. In 1927, a guy by the name of George Lemaitre, he was a Belgian Catholic priest and an astronomer and professor developed a theory based on Einstein's general, rel general relativity theory that the universe began, you've heard this expression before, with a bang. So this guy by the name of Georges Lemaitre, a Belgian Catholic priest, he's the one that coined the phrase Big Bang. That's where that noise, that's where that came from. In 1929, two years later, a guy by the name of Edwin Hubble working at the Mount, Univers Mount Wilson Un Astronomy or Observatory in Los Angeles, discovered a, what's a color shift and uh, uh, that the galaxies he termed redshift would indicate galaxies were moving away from the Earth. So you put a telescope on something and you can measure the amount of light. You know, you've seen through a, per a prism, probably everybody has seen through a prism or at least a picture of a prism where Light is separated up into multiple colors, multiple, you know, the, whatever the, I don't know what all the colors are, but red and yellow and violet and those are different colors. And so he, so this guy, uh, Edwin Hubble, uh, noted, noticed that galaxies had a, they emitted more red color than they did in, than other galaxies. It was close, further away, they, they emanated a red galaxy. So basically, they looked red in the telescope instead of white or instead of purple. They looked red. He called that redshift, 
And the shift is not that the galaxies are getting farther away, it's that the universe itself is expanding and making everything look like they're moving away from each other. The point of all of this is that, is that um, there's a, let me just, I think I can get to this, let me get, let me go through the rest of these and I'll come back to it. Um, R is radiation background from the Big Bang, which I just brought up. In 1965, two men um, were constructing an antenna in New Jersey for a company called Bell Labs. And while they were testing, they noticed that some electrical noise was being recorded in their antenna. And they tried to position it, clean it. They tried to figure out how to get it down to no noise at all. And what they finally discovered was what we now call cosmic background radiation or the afterglow of the Big Bang. And so this is what, this is what they see on a map or in, within their telescope, this antenna that they were creating. And so that's basically a picture, what they say anyway, a picture of the galaxy when it first started um, so many billion years ago. This is what's called cosmic background radiation. The radiation was actually predicted um, in 1948, but it was discovered by accident. So this guy writes, this guy, Jay uh, uh, Jaskro, um, Robert Jaskro, let's see if I can read this to you. You can probably read it, but he said, now that we see the astronomical evidence leads to a biblical view of the origin of the world, the details differ, but the essential elements in the astro astronomical and biblical accounts of Genesis are the same. The chain of events leading to man commenced suddenly and sharply at a defined moment, definite moment in time in a flash of light and energy. So he's basically agreeing that the thing that we would like, people like to call the Big Bang um, is supported by the Bible. Uh, now, we don't call it the Big Bang in the Bible, but that's just what the scientists like to call it. But God spoke and created. Okay, we'll go back to that surge. Uh, the last, uh, last two. First one is, the next one is galaxy seeds. It's a strange thing to think about for sure, but after the Bell Labs discovery, more theories were developed. Because the more, the more scientists, more scientific uh, results that they find on different things, the more questions they ask, well, why is that? And they have to create more theories, more, more testing, more, more, more research. And the images show, if the images show the background radiation, then maybe there's evidence of how galaxies formed. And so, so their theory predicted a kind of ripple pattern it might help gravity align particles in a way to form galaxies. And in 1980, 1989, that's exactly what they found. They sent up a $200 million satellite called the Hubble Space Telescope. Uh, was sent up, and sure enough, they not only detected ripples, but even the precise way they were aligned. The lead astronomer of the project was quoted as saying, if you're religious, it looks like you're looking at God. Okay, the last one is for E is Einstein's general relativity. And the best I can explain in this one, because uh, it can be a little bit confusing, but the results of this theory literally demanded an absolute beginning of time and space. His general th relativity theory demands a beginning in time. That's why he didn't like it. That's why Einstein didn't like his general theory of relativity, because that shows there has to be an absolute time of beginning of universe. General relativity is is Einstein's understanding of how gravity affects the fabric of time. 
not, not long after he discovered and published his theory of general relativity, researchers realized the theory predicts that the universe changes in time. Um, and observations from the 20s found that prediction was true. The universe is expanding with galaxies moving away from each other. So the whole point of this is every, as everything, the best way I can, you can vision is that galaxies are moving away. That's where the redshifts come. Galaxies are moving away from the Earth. They're moving in different directions and, and away from us. But if you were to bring it back in time, if you were to reel it back in, back to tape up all the way to the beginning and everything come back to one place, they're showing that the universe had a beginning. The universe had a beginning. And then um, these are things, let me just give you a list of things that were predicted uh, in, in his general theory of relativity. An expanding universe, the radiation afterglow, which is that picture that I just showed you, uh, the, the seeds of galaxies starting, black holes, you probably have heard of black holes. Uh, they just said they found our black hole in our galaxy. I don't know if they did or not, but that's what they claim. Gravitational waves um, and such. The theory, along with the laws of thermodynamics, makes a strong case for the premise for premise two that the universe is created, and it confirms the word of Scripture that God created the universe. And that brings us to premise three. The universe was created by a uncaused God. Okay, so that's pretty heavy stuff regarding creation of the universe, but it does prove that there is a God. But let me give you some objections, and maybe you're thinking you've heard this before. Uh, what about what about if the universe is self-created? Remember, we talked about God being a necessary being, but some people will say, well, why, the, why couldn't the universe be a necessary thing? Why did, it, why did this universe have to have a cause? So could the universe just be self-created? And to many scientists and non-believers, inconceivable that God would be the source of all matter, time, and energy. It's just inconceivable. But look what Stephen Hawking had to say. I don't know if you can read that. Can you, I hope you can read that. It's reasonable to ask who or what created the universe, but if the answer is God, then the question has merely been deflected to that of who created God. He goes right back to the cause-cause thing. He didn't know about my chain link, log, log chain. We claim, however, that it is possible to answer these questions purely within the realm of science and without invoking any divine beings. That's part of what he wrote in his book called The Grand Design. So let me show you this video uh, to these two guys. One of them is, an, is a believer. Uh, you'll be able to figure out which one is which pretty quick. Uh, I think uh, probably seven or eight minutes worth of video here. This is a, de a debate or discussion in February 2014 between a guy named William Craig um, and uh, a guy named Sean Carroll, a physicist at Caltech University. I'm going to get past all of that because I don't know where I'm going to get you the video. Here we go. I don't know how to start that. It should just start. Just not.
And in the case of creation, I would say, the universe comes into being at t equals zero, and that is the same moment at which God causes the universe to come into being. I'm pretty sure nobody cares about my opinion about God's atemporality, so I will use this as an excuse uh, to reiterate my objection to the language of coming into existence or popping into existence. That is not what the universe does, even in models where the universe has a beginning, a first moment. Because the, net, the verb popping, the verb to pop, uh, has a temporal um, connotation, is the word I'm looking for. It sounds as if you waited a while and then pop, there was the universe. But that's exactly wrong. There, the correct statement is that there are models that are complete and consistent in which there is a first moment of time. That is not the same as to say that there was some process by which the universe popped into being. That's yet another difference between the universe and things inside the universe. Universe is just popping into existence. Does cosmology have anything to say about where God might have come from, or are we allowed to think that he could have popped into existence? Yeah. No, obviously cosmology would not have anything to say about where God came from because God is a non-physical transcendent entity beyond the universe. Um, that's why I use the word transcendent in that argument. This is something that is beyond the universe. The universe is defined as all contiguous physical reality. But I do want to take this opportunity to highlight for you a very significant difference between Sean and myself that is a philosophical difference that has tremendous impact upon this whole debate, and that has to do with this idea of popping into existence. If I'm not mistaken, Dr. Carroll holds to what is called a tenseless theory of time. That is to say, past, present, and future events are all equally real. Temporal becoming is merely a subjective illusion of human consciousness. There is nothing privileged about the present, ontologically speaking. I hold to quite a different view of time. I think that um, temporal becoming is a real and objective feature of the universe. The future doesn't in any sense exist. Things really do come into being and go out of being. And that's why I use the language of popping into existence, not because I illicitly presuppose a, a time prior to the origin of the universe, but because I believe in a tensed theory of time which affirms the objectivity of temporal becoming. And on that view, the beginning of the universe does not just tenselessly exist. The universe comes into being, and surely that requires a cause. Now, this is not just an unfounded metaphysical assumption on my part. I've written two books on this in which I defend the tensed theory of time, uh, giving arguments for it and answering objections against it, and then I attack the tenseless theory of time, giving arguments against it and answering the arguments for it. But this is a huge metaphysical time. assumption that underlies this debate and divides us. It's interesting, these two guys uh, debating. One guy says, uh, it, popped, it didn't pop in, it just became. It's, that's just a semantical difference, really. But you could tell which one is the, the atheist here. I want to back up real quick because I kind of over, overstated or skipped over a few things I want to make sure that we cover. Okay, after, after we talked about uh, Stephen Hawking's uh, comments about self-creation, that's the question, what, what is nothing? When we're talking about nothing, what is nothing? Do you ever define nothing? Can you even define nothing? 
So what about, it's okay, so they got a circle there. Is, is energy nothing? No, energy is something. Uh, what about particles that, that are not seen? Are they nothing? No, there's, just because you can't see them, there's, there's something. Uh, matter, uh, motion. What about space itself? Uh, recently, in the last probably 12 or 15 years, the, the, the idea of quantum physics has become uh, popular to discuss about God not being in existence, that everything came from a quantum uh, world. Uh, so what they say is that uh, there is a vacuum, a quantum vacuum. Is that nothing? Well, if you can call it something, it's something, isn't it? Okay, I like this right here. Aristotle, this is what he says about nothing. Aristotle, even though we were talking about him make, make, making some errors earlier, this is what he said about nothing. Aristotle says, nothing is what rocks dream about. Um, rocks don't dream, so their dreams are nothing. They have no dreams. So there's a couple of um, Latin words I want to give you uh, familiarity to. Uh, ex nihilo nihil fit means out of nothing, nothing comes. So out of nothing, nothing comes. Out of, uh, and, and, um, and creation is ex nihilo, out of nothing, creation. So these two phrases, so scientists that don't believe in universe will say out of nothing, nothing comes. And creationists would say out of nothing comes creation. So there's not really a whole lot of options for creation. There's basically for the, the thing, when I say creation, not the creatine, but the, the actual creation the, the, the universe, there's only two options. Either human intelligence ultimately owes its origin to mindless matter, or there is a creator. So we, we either have a history of mindless matter that, that ultimately we came out of, or we came from a creator. And it's a strange that some people claim that it is their intelligence that leads them to prefer this first rather than the second. And then ontologically means to exist. Uh, a thing cannot be ontological. A thing cannot exist prior to itself. To create yourself, you must have existed prior to yourself. That's the only way you could have created. The universe can't create itself because it would have to create. It would, it would have been something that existed before it created the universe. Self-creation fails as an explanation of the universe because it is analytically false. Self-creation doesn't work. That was one of the, that was the first argument that we brought up, uh, an appeal for self-creation. Uh, now I want to talk about uh, an appeal for the start of time. So Stephen Hawking, again, had another quote that I want to give you. Mo many people do not like the idea that time had a beginning, probably because it smacks of divine intervention beginning. I mean, he, he, he doesn't believe that. He just, if there's a beginning, then that's what some people will think. Um, and that's what, that's right. So, and I, I was going to show you this video, but we already watched that, so we will go on and skip all of this. Um, 
So Colossians chapter 1, there are things that do, um, um, is, is possible, uh, not only possible to have something that exists before its creation, it is exactly what God's word describes. In Colossians chapter 1 verse 17, it says, God is before all things and by him all things consist. And in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he hath made himself when he hath pur- himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. So the start of time argument uh, fails due to the proof from cause argument, which we looked at a couple weeks ago. And there's some other arguments that you may have heard, uh, like what about multi-universes? You ever heard, anybody have heard multi, about, could there be more than one universe? Ron raising his hand. Anybody else? A couple people. Okay, multiple universes. The multiple universe theory postulates or states that the simultaneous existence of many, possibly infinitely number of parallel universes. So instead of just being, it's kind of like that picture. Each little dot or or circle or blob, that's a universe. And there's just some untold number of universes out there. That's the theory. We just happen to be in a good one. We just happen to be lucky enough to be, it's not a parallel, it's not like in used on Star Trek where you have a parallel universe. It's just another universe and we just happen to be in the one that works for us. That's a multiple universe. Uh, anything possibly theorized, dreamed up, or thought about is possible in at least one of these universes. That would be the position to take. Therefore, we should not be surprised by finding something in our own universe that makes sense. But the problem with this concept is this. Philosophically, Remember, we talked about the, the, the log chain discussion. Um, any any multiple, multiple multiverse scenario would have the same problem. When do you go back? What is the cause of, the, of all of these multiple universes? Did they just happen on their own? I mean, are, are there three? Are there 30,000 of them? How many of them are there? Where did they all come from? And how did we get so lucky to be in the one that supported life. So philosophically, um, the multiverse doesn't work. Scientifically, there's no evidence for it. There is no evidence at all for multiple universe. It's not like they, I mean, there's theories. There's, you know, some guys sitting around thinking about things, and they say, well, maybe there's more than one universe. Or they watch the Star Trek episode or something, I don't know. And they say, there's no multiple universe. That makes sense, but it doesn't because there's no evidence. I mean, at least we have evidence that this universe exists because we're here. We live in it. We can see it. Uh, no model has, ev- uh, has evidence showing up any reality that extends into the infinite past. And one of the best proofs of this theory was developed in 2003. Um, and so I want to talk about that. These, these well, let me... In 2003, uh, these th- three men, um, I won't give you their names right now. I don't think, yeah, they're Alexander, Alexander or Arvin Board, Alexander Vilkin, and Alan Gunt. Uh, they developed a theory um, that supports or that eliminates the need for anything more than a single universe. And what makes their proof so powerful is that it holds together regardless of the physical description of the universe. Their theory is independent of physical de- description 
of that moment of beginning, and it implies that even if our universe is just a tiny part of a so-called multiverse composed of many universes, the multiverse must have had an absolute beginning. So basically, they just go back and say the same thing, that our universe had a beginning, and if there is multiple universes, they all had a beginning. That's basically their position. Now, these men are not believers. They're not Christians. They're more like Einstein. They're not too happy about the prospects of their theory pointing to there is a God. And this is what Vilkin said. This is a quote from him. Um, it, it is said that an argument is what com- convinces reasonable men and a proof is what takes re- con- to convince even unreasonable men. With the proof now in place, cosmologists can no longer hide behind the possibility of a past eternal universe. There is no escape. They have to face the problem of a cosmetic, a cosmic beginning. So he's a lost man. He doesn't believe in God, but he's basically saying, "We got to come to terms with this. We got to, you know, this, this. We got to admit there is a beginning, and if there's a beginning, it probably was God." And a couple of other quotes I want to share with you is a guy by the name of John Plunkinghorn. He was a scientist, a quantum physicist guy. He says, let us recognize these specifications for what they are. They're not physics, but in the strictest sense, metaphysics. There is no purely scientific reason to believe in an ensemble of universes. He's saying there's just no evidence. There's no reason to believe in a multiple universe. And then another guy, Richard Swinehart, uh, Swinburne, to postulate a trillion trillion other universes rather than one God in order to explain the orderliness of our universe seems the height of irrationality. So why not God? Why can't we just have God? Why is it? What what is it about God? So we got a few minutes left, and I want to make sure I get get through this other um, because I mentioned con- quantum theory before. So let me talk about quantum theory. This is another argument for quantum theory or against the creation of the universe. Some scientists claim that quantum mechanics is the answer. And the simplest way to describe quantum theory is that it's a subset of physics explaining the physical behavior of the molecular atom and the subatomic levels. The theory states that things come into existence from nothing, and quantum mechanics proves this. So the theory is that things just pop in. We use that guy's word in the video they just pop in the problem begins when you first realize that there are 10 interpretations of the equations for quantum theory so i don't know what the equations look like i'm not a math guy i don't know anything about quantum but i will say that that there's over 10 different ways to interpret the the formulas for what the quantum theory is about quantum particles um result in fluctuations in the quantum vacuum, which is not nothing. They do not begin to exist from nothing. They're in a, they're in a vacuum already. They just show up out of the vacuum. And when these particles form, they come from energy that is locked in the vacuum. It's a sea. The vacuum would be described as a sea of fluctuating energy governed by physical laws, having physical structure. No evidence suggests, however, that things come into being from nothing. Let me give you, um, so remember we talked about Hawking's comments on, on, on gravity. And another comment here, John, um, John Lennox says, Hawking's argument appears to me even more illogical when he says the existence of gravity 
means the creation of the universe was inevitable. And I didn't show you that quote from, from, from uh, Stephen Hawking, but he basically said that, if, that the reason that we have a universe is because of gravity. Gravity is what, what produced our universe. And so John Lennox is saying, it appears to be illogical when he says that the existence of gravity means that the creation of the universe was inevitable. But how did gravity exist in the first place? Who put it there? And what is the creative force behind gravity's birth? The most accepted theoretical model, um, I'm going to tell you what, I'm going to skip that because I want to get down to this, this last section here called the God particle. Has anybody ever heard of the God particle? A few? Okay. Let me talk about the God particle. This was a uh, quantum um, particle. It's been called the Higgs boson after Peter Higgs, the physicist who predicted that it existed in the corresponding Higgs field. That's the guy that named, they named, they like to name things after people. The Higgs boson is responsible for a field that stretched across space that determines the mass of various and other particles moving throughout space. In, in 2012, uh, these, this God particle, the Higgs boson particle, was empirically confirmed. They actually observed it. They did see it by scientists at the Large Hadron Collider in, in, at CERN, which is the European Organization for Nuclear Research. Basically, they built a racetrack. I think its circumference is 30 miles. It's a tube tunnel. And they shot out a particle this way, and they shot out another particle this way, and they were hoping that when they come around the, the, the bend, they would crash into each other and explode. And they would see the, the, this boson particle. Because the boson decays, decays so quickly and requires so much extraordinary high energy to create it, it took considerable time, money, and effort to finally make this happen. Basically, the, steer, the theory states that the Higgs entered existence and attributed mass to other particles, therefore created the explosive force of the Big Bang. So they produced this in this, in this round 30-mile circle circumference tunnel to try to say this, 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 this uh, particle crashed into another atom, and the force that was released is equivalent to the force that created the universe. That's what they claim. It's one of those wonderful instances in which scientists where theoretical predictions were shown to be correct by experimental scientists. But the discovery changes nothing for cosmological arguments for creation or design or fine-tuning or any of those other things. For three reasons, the Higgs boson doesn't, doesn't prove that God didn't create the universe. These arguments assume the standard model and particles that, of particle physics is correct. It assumes that scientists still need to, they still need a grand unified theory in order to explain the physics of the universe. And prior to all of that, we still need a quantum theory of gravity, basically a theory of everything, to incorporate the gravitational force. So the Higgs boson was empirically confirmed, um, but it does not harm or, or does not uh, rise in contention that God is not the first cause, first uncaused cause. Just because we found a boson doesn't mean that doesn't mean that that, that created the universe. It just means that they, they it came out of a vacuum. They they did see it. It exists. But everything is is 
uh, um, contingent upon God. Even the boson particle is contingent on God. So it's called the God particle because a guy wrote a book in 1993, and that's the title of the book, The God Particle. He called it the God particle for two reasons. Because like God, the particle underlies every physical object that exists, but it didn't. And like God, the particle is very difficult to detect. That is true. So quantum scientists claim that without the boson particle, nothing would have any mass, and the universe would be devoid of physical objects. So they want to they want to put give credit to the boson particle instead of giving credit to God. But the the Bible says in Hebrews chapter one verse ten. Thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thine hands. In verse, chapter, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, it says, What begins, who being the brightness of his glory, and the express image of his person, and the upholding all things by the word of his power, when he, made himself per, uh, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. So the Higgs boson is, in, is itself a contingent particle on God. But as soon as it's formed, it decays. That, so that thermal law of dynamics here, the Higgs boson, a lot of power, a lot of energy, dissipates fast. The entropy just, it's, it just disappears. It just, nothing sustains it. And, and uh, so it's in, it is a contingent particle, contingent on God. It does not exist necessarily. And the Higgs boson and the Higgs field themselves are products of the Big Bang and not necessary to produce the Big Bang, and they are not eternal either. So let me conclude with this this tonight with this. Um, so we got this picture here that I was wanting to get to. So this is how things would look. Grab if I, I I put this little chart together. So I don't think you can read. You can't read. That's too far away. An explosive force expands the universe by a factor of ten to the twenty-six in less than ten to the negative thirty second seconds. The universe is not born from singularity, but from the word of God. Time zero. The universe is created. <clears throat> the cosmic radiation, I showed that image I showed you that was the background radiation. If you were to get here on the, on the right side of this, this tube and look down it, that's what you would see was that image. And right there is when the first stars were finally formed and from the gas clouds of all the explosion and the dust and the particles condensing and cooling. And then galaxies formation here. So when God spoke, everything happened. We don't need a Higgs boson particle to, to light it up. We don't need any of that. God created the universe. And we just got to see what it looks like. Yeah. My interpretation of what I've read, yes, that's there. So they, they produced this, this accelerator tube just so that they could see it happen. So they say, yes, that's, that's the energy that created T1, T0. But yes, Ron.
Well, not enough to destroy the tube. That's all I can tell you. The tube is still there. It, it didn't create a new universe. That I can't answer. I, I've not read enough uh, about the boson particle to know what they equate, the amount of energy that was there or anything like, or anything like that. So I can't really answer that question, Ron, other than there wasn't enough energy there to create a new universe, and there wasn't enough energy there to destroy the, the accelerator tube. That's all I can say. Yes. I'm sorry? I think it was, I'm guessing, because I, I didn't bother to read the, the, the construction of the tube, but I'm thinking it was magnetic coils, because magnetic coils make things move very fast, you know, like a, a train in Japan type of thing. You know, rides on coils, rides on magnets, and goes fast. That's all I can think of. The point of all of this is, is there's a lot of arguments out there for, for why, how, the, how the universe was created. Was it even created? Uh, who created it? A Higgs boson particle or just by itself? And uh, so let me, let, me, let me get back to my point here, and we'll wrap up real quick. And if you have any other questions, I'll try, to, I'll try to answer them. So why do men like Hawking and others offer such obvious dead-end propositions? That's basically the question that we would get to. Why do they offer dead-end propositions? Well, because Romans chapter 1, verse 25 says, They changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. That basically, they wanted to worship the creation instead of worship the Creator. Okay, so there's a phrase that you may have heard before called drowning the fish. Okay, so spontaneous or self-creation, multiple, multiple universes, quantum mechanics, or other propositions by non-believing scientists are example of what's called drowning the fish. You can use all the water in the ocean in an attempt to drown the animal, but in the end it will still be there confirming its existence and its presence. So they're trying to drown God in all of the scientific theories that they have. They're trying to drown God, but God just keeps looking at them. Come on, throw some more water on me. It's okay. I don't know if he's really saying that, but, you know, the point is they're trying to drown God in all the scientific theories and postulations of all kinds of possibilities and confusing. I mean, I'm trying not to confuse anybody on anything, but I know this is confusing. Um, but anyway, you can use all the water you want in the ocean to drown him, but the fish is still there. Scientists used to start with God. When they used to do experiments, they started with God. They began with God because only a God of order could enable them to believe in order of the universe in mathematics or anything. They had to believe in God. They all, Arno Penzias, this is an incredibly uh, arrogant quote. I think this is the guy. No, this is not the guy. I'll get to the... Uh, so uh, this is, yeah, this is him, but this is not the quote I'm looking for. The best data we have concerning the origin of the universe are exactly what I would have predicted had I nothing to go on but the five books of Moses, the Psalms, and the Bible as a whole. Now, he's a Nobel astrophysicist, and he said, just go to the Bible. 
And then, um, oh, this is the one I'm looking for. George Wald, professor of biology at the University of Harvard. There are only two possibilities of how, to, how life arose. One is spontaneous generation arising to evolution. The other is a supernatural creative act of God. There is no third possibility. Spontaneous generation that life arose from non-living matter was scientifically disproved 120 years ago by Louis Pasteur, <clears throat> Pasteur and others. That leaves us with only one possible conclusion that life arose from a creative act of God. And notice I got this in highlight. I will not accept a philosophically, that philosophically because I do not want to believe in God. Therefore, I choose to believe in that which I know is scientifically impossible. I mean, that's about as arrogant as you can get. Uh, I, don't, I, I, know that God doesn't ex I know God exists, but I don't want to believe in him. I mean, he's talking about drowning a fish. Good grief. So they flat out declare their denial. <clears throat> so why is there something rather than nothing? Well, the answer to why is there something rather than nothing is in Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. It says, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive honor and glory and power, for Thou hast created all things. Why did He create them? For His pleasure. That they, for, his, for Thy pleasure, they are and were created. Whether it was a Higgs boson particle, whether it was a fish, whether it was a, a anything at all, if everything in the universe, every single thing in the universe is contingent on God. So however we want to look at all of this scientific stuff that I'm kind of, you know, laying out to you to the best of my inability, God is the answer. Uh, quantum physics doesn't answer the question, you know, how, how was the universe created without a God? It wasn't. God created quantum physics. God created the quantum vacuum. God created the, the, the particles that are there. Everything that's, everything that's that's part of God or part of the universe, there's nothing in the universe that self-created, and there's nothing in the universe that was not created by God or has its connection to God in some way. Everything is. And so, um, there's anyway, that's about the time. We're actually a few minutes over, so I need to fix that clock. So, okay, any other last questions? Okay, so next week we had VBS, so no, no, no Wednesday night Bible study. Week after, um, actually the week after, that's when Cody Walker is coming, I believe. And then the following week after that, so three weeks from now. So next week, week then, then now three weeks from now, we'll be uh, Jeremy teaching on, the, on um, design. So let's pray and we'll be done. Father in heaven, Lord.